let's go ahead and turn our attention now to Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to go ahead and begin reading in verse 26. Galatians 3, 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor uh, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children... We're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me now in prayer? Father, this morning we rejoice and thank you for answered prayer. Thank you for working in the hearts of our teenagers. That's something we asked you to do last week, and here you've done it. Thank you for... Uh, raising up believers to exercise and use their spiritual gifts to build up your body and to reach the world for Christ. Thank you for the way that you're doing that here. Thank you for uh, Pastor Guy as he uh, travels right now to Fiji and uh, ministers there among the churches and uh, forms relationships and makes plans for further evangelistic efforts on that island. I, I pray that you'd keep him safe and, and make his work fruitful this morning. Father, we pray as well for uh, our uh, brother and sister, Scott Royal and Renee, and, and as they embark on a very important week in their ministry, uh, the Leadership Expedition, I pray that you would strengthen their hands. I pray that you would uh, anoint them and their co-workers and their co-laborers as they minister to the young men who will be there for that event at the Tesoro Escondido Ranch. And I pray that your love and your goodness and your kindness and your power would be seen and known through their ministry and through the words that they say and the ways that they relate to the young men who will be there these next two weeks. And Father, I, I pray that as we open up your word this morning, you would just reveal what it means to say that we are your sons, that we have adoption, that we belong to you, and that just like David could call you father, so can we today. Lord, I pray that you would cause that truth to sink in, take hold, and exercise control of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> In the 1780s, 
few denominations in the fledgling United States were as racially diverse as the Methodist church. Historians, according to an article in Christianity Today, surmise that at this time, approximately 10% of the worshipers gathering in Methodist congregations throughout North America were black. Now, I'm not sure whether that reflected the makeup of the communities in which these churches were situated or not. I really don't know enough about that time period to be able to tell. But sadly, and perhaps unsurprisingly to all of us, it was a greater level of diversity than the white congregants of St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia could apparently stomach. At the beginning of the decade, both white and black worshipers were seated together, dispersed throughout the sanctuary. Perhaps the fact that there were only a few black families made it easier for their neighbors to permit this to be the case. But as the 1780s wore on, more black Christians joined the church's roles, and white folks began to grow uneasy. Finally, they decided to reserve pews on the basis of skin color. Actually, it was, the only, it was only the white families who were allowed to sit in any of the pews. The black families had to sit in chairs lining the walls. Well, of course, some of the leaders of the church, lay preachers who happened to be black, didn't get the memo and continued to operate as though they were the adopted sons of God fully welcome into Christ's family and heirs of all the privileges and the benefits of such an honored status. In their case, basing their behavior on the teachings of the New Testament rather than the taste of their uppity neighbors would earn them a stern rebuke. During one service in 1787, Absalom Jones and his friend Richard Allen sat together in a pew that had recently been installed in the sanctuary and unbeknownst to them, reserved for whites only. As they began to participate in the prayer service, kneeling in front of their seats, they were rudely accosted by a trustee who chided them for sitting in a pew reserved for whites. They, they politely said, can we please you know, finish our prayer time? And the man refused to let them. He persisted. Finally, they got up and they walked out realizing they could no longer worship as members of a church that considered them second class. A few years later, they founded Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church, later affectionately known as Mother Bethel, because from this particular congregation was launched a fellowship of churches that now spans five continents and is populated with more than two million members. Now, I can't tell you very much about the AME church today. I don't know very much about it. But its founding pastor, Richard Allen, was on to something. He was thoroughly convinced of the very truth that Paul expresses and expounds on in today's passage. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. When that cranky old trustee tapped him on the shoulder, on the shoulder he, was, he was assaulting his identity in Christ. And it seems to me that today that, that for various reasons there are maybe people in this room for whom your identity in Christ, your identity as a son of God, is being assaulted. Maybe a friend or a family member has convinced you that you don't count, at least not as much as the next guy. 
Maybe the devil or one of his henchmen has accused you and condemned you for sin that's already been nailed to the cross and already been forgiven, and you're having trouble believing that God really forgives you for Jesus' sake. Maybe suffering and trials have worn you down and you're grieving and discouraged and the truth of who you are in Christ just isn't hitting home because you're feeling the pain. Or maybe you're here today and you're not in Christ. You're not experiencing adoption and you need to know that. Either way, it's critically important that we understand this wonderful reality called adoption. The reality that those who are in Christ are the sons of God. In this text, Paul is going to answer three questions. First of all, who is a son of God? Secondly, how does one become a son of God? And then finally, how does one know that he or she is a son of God? By the way, before we get into the text... I'm using that phraseology on purpose, and Paul uses it on purpose. He says you're sons of God, not sons and daughters of God, not because he is into gender fluidity or because he's a male chauvinist, but because he wants to communicate something specific about our inheritance as the royal heirs and the offspring of God himself. We'll get into that in a minute. But with that being said, who is a son of God? That's our first question. Who is a son of God? Well, the answer is simple, right? All who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you've put on Christ, if you belong to Christ, those are three ways of referring to the same reality in this very text, then you are sons of God. But let's not miss the emphasis of what Paul is saying here in these verses. He says at the end of chapter 3, you are all sons of God. The emphasis is on all of you, all without distinction, Gentiles, Jews, slave, free, male, female, all who are in Christ are Abraham's offspring. There is no distinction. That means that the status of sonship, all of the attendant blessings and privileges and responsibilities attached to that status are yours in Christ Jesus on that one condition. What is that condition? What is, how does he put it? Is it being born a Jew? No. Is it keeping the law of Moses? No, that's not the condition of being called a, a son of God. It's this. Have you been baptized into Christ? This is what he says. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You say, what does that mean? Well, the word baptize in our vocabulary is sort of a religious word, isn't it? Uh, but in Antiquity, it was not a religious word. It's just a word that means to immerse or to dip or plunge or uh, to, to dunk something under water. And when the word's used literally in the Bible, the medium is always water. Uh, for example, when uh, the translators of the Bible in antiquity who wanted to translate the Old Testament uh, from Hebrew into Greek, and they translated the passage about Naaman the Syrian who dipped himself in the Jordan River seven times, they used this word. He, he baptized himself in the Jordan River, meaning he dipped his body into the river. He dunked himself. He plunged himself under the water. When Mark talks about the customs of the Pharisees and how they always used to wash their cups and their plates in order to avoid eating anything unclean, Mark uses this word as well. He says the Jews have these traditions and these customs that they observe, such as the washing, that's that word, baptism, uh, the plunging, the immersing of cups and pots and copper vessels. They would plunge them into water and clean them before they use them for eating. 
Uh, That's often the usage when referring to people too. John the Baptist used to baptize people. He would plunge them beneath the surface of the water. Uh, In the book of Acts, this is how the word is used. The Ethiopian eunuch was baptized. Philip plunged him beneath the water. He was immersed in water. That's the literal meaning of the word. But there are a few times in the New Testament where what's emphasized is not a physical act, but a spiritual reality. And that's what's in view here. How do I know that? Uh, Notice here in Galatians 3 how Paul uses the term. He says, as many of you as were baptized into water, no, into Christ, right? As many of you as were plunged, immersed into Christ. Can you picture that in your mind's eye? That's not literally or physically what takes place. It's a word picture. He's people, he's talking about people being so plunged into Christ that they become one with him. It's like putting on Christ, like you're enrobed in Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm getting at. It it wouldn't make sense to understand Paul as saying, if you want to be a son of God, then you need to physically get baptized. That's not the point he's making at all. In fact, if you read the entirety of the book of Galatians, that's almost the opposite of what he's trying to say. Uh, That's what his opponents were saying about circumcision, but Paul is arguing the opposite. He's speaking about the necessity of being plunged into Christ, of being so immersed in him that my soul becomes united with the soul of Jesus. That positionally and practically I become one with Christ. Certainly the the physical ritual of baptism symbolizes and shows that to be the case. But it's got to be a spiritual reality. I need to be immersed in Christ. Commentator Timothy George puts it this way. Baptism in the New Testament, he says, invariably implies a radical personal commitment involving a decisive no to one's former way of life, and an equally emphatic yes to Jesus Christ. For Paul, the baptismal rite, with its evocation of and association with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, models justification, although it can never mediate it. What he's saying is the outward physical act reflects the spiritual reality that's going on in our hearts. From time to time, I've been asked, can I, hey, can I get baptized a different way? You know, I'm not sure if I am up for being plunged beneath the water. Hey, maybe, can I join the church without being baptized? And, and when you press into that question, you get reasons like, well, I'm embarrassed, or I'm a little bit afraid of water, or something like that, or, you know, you don't know my family. They're going to disown me if I get baptized. And what those ways of thinking reveal to me is that the symbol of baptism by immersion in water is actually doing the very thing it was designed to do. It's designed to show the radical nature of what takes place on the inside. When I'm plunged into Christ, when I put on Christ, I have to put off my former identity. I have to say no to all those former things and yes to Jesus Christ and and. I realize that for many of you, that's the decision that you're at right now. You're deciding whether or not you're going to follow through on that and be baptized. And I know that that's a radical decision, but it's going to require that you trust Christ. I challenge you to take that step of obedience. But what Paul is saying here is that those who are immersed into Christ spiritually, whose very selves are destroyed and then remade in him, 
can know that they are the sons of God. And it's out of this reality that Paul's able to draw a powerful inference. Think about this. If it's true that we are the sons of God through faith, if it's true that those who believe have actually died to self and been raised as a totally new person and have put on Christ, they've been stripped of the old and they've been clothed with the new, Here's what that means. It means that every single solitary believer enjoys every single blessing promised to Christ. It means that there is no distinction. It it means that I don't bring with me into my Christian walk my former identity. I leave all of that behind and I walk into who Christ is and I enjoy all the blessings that Christ enjoys. I'm one with him and it doesn't matter what my background is or my uh, last name or what's in my bank account or whatever, where I live, it just matters that I'm in Christ. As you're reading through the Bible and you come across a promise and that promise is directed toward the offspring of Abraham, yes, toward the nation of Israel, then simply ask yourself, who is the offspring of Abraham? And, And the answer that Paul gives is, well, that's Jesus Christ. And if it's true that the promise falls on Jesus Christ and I've put on Christ, then that promise is for me. The false brothers plaguing the Galatian churches were coming in and they're saying, hey, it's nice to be in Christ, that's great. But if you really want to be a son of God, you need to be a Jew. I'm sure there were others who were saying, well, sure, we're all in Christ and we all benefit from his life and death and resurrection, but there are certain people who have earned greater honor and a richer inheritance than other, than, than, than other people. And Paul says, no way, we've all got all of the inheritance that God has in store for Christ. There are no second or third class citizens in the church. They're all in Christ. There is no Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free distinction when it comes to the honors and the privileges of sonship. Now, that doesn't mean that the practical distinctions between different types of people fall away in every respect. It doesn't make sense. That doesn't jive with what other things Paul says in other parts of the Bible. But what he does mean to say is that in terms of honor and privilege and blessing... No one gets second place. We all get the whole thing. Here's our takeaway from verses 26 through 29. Our adoption in Christ is unlimited. It's unlimited. Everyone in Christ gets it all. There are no favorites among God's children because we're all in Christ. We're all his favorite. But before we move on to the next question, let's let's just draw out some applications for a moment here. I have a question. If it's true that God bestows the blessing and the honor of sonship on everyone who has been plunged into Christ without distinction, if God's bestowed that honor on people, am I following his example? In other words, do I honor my brothers and my sisters as heirs of the promise or do I put people in different categories in my mind? You'll notice that in the, in the three word pairs Paul mentions in verse 28, there's a class of people with greater honor or status from the perspective of the world and a people with lower honor or status from the perspective of the world. In, in uh, the Galatian uh, situation, they may have been tempted to think that the Jews had greater honor than the Gentiles. And Paul says, if you're in Christ, no, there's no distinction. 
uh, in the 19th century, American Christians were tempted and often fall, fell prey to this temptation to limit the ways in which a slave enjoyed the same honors and privileges of the free. If more Christians had been willing to allow this verse and others like it to really have their full effect, then slavery may have been abolished long before it was. Today, I wonder if we in the church have fallen prey as well to the same tendency to absorb the shock of a verse like this when it comes to men and women. Men, let me ask you something. Do you truly, really, honestly bestow the same degree of honor on the women of this church that God the Father reserves for the offspring of Abraham? I'm asking that because more than once I've found that not to be the case in my own life. I found myself dismissing a sister in Christ, wanting to put her in her place. You say, Jake, that doesn't mean that women can preach. It doesn't mean men shouldn't lead. It doesn't mean the wife should rule the roost. Okay, fine. I get all of that. But let me ask you this. Have you really allowed yourself to consider what it does mean? Practically. Can't we rejoice when we observe evidence of the Spirit's work in our sister in Christ? Can't we be grateful for her knowledge of doctrine and her wisdom in providing counsel? Can't we allow her the same space to grow and to, to learn that we allow the men in the church? And I think if many of us were being honest, we would have to admit that we've allowed the distinctness between the roles of men and women in the home and the church to provide cover for our bitterness our jealousy, our envy, our love of preeminence and power. And I'm just asking you to apply this verse to your life. Now, I know I didn't hear a lot of amens in that, but <laughs> you'd better do it. <laughs> How about those who follow Christ, but they don't belong to our little subculture? They're not Baptist. They're not American. I, I, I have to say, out of all the men that I've had the privilege to sit under their teaching, that I've had the privilege to learn from in Bible college or seminary or in church, the most insightful, wise, and helpful have been those who have spent time learning from Christians who do not live in the United States of America. Uh, people who have spent time on the mission field or maybe grew up in a totally different culture themselves and have been walking with Jesus. And that's not a knock on the United States it's an observation that God is working in and through believers all around the world. And when I have the privilege to learn from somebody who doesn't share my blind spots, that's a good thing. I don't want to treat anybody as a second-class citizen or a second-class Christian because they have, from my perspective, have a funny accent or because they look differently than I do or because their worship service on Sunday looks a little different from my own. Let's celebrate the fact that our adoption is not limited by family or culture or background or gender or economic status because if it were, I'm sure I would be disqualified. We don't earn the honors of sonship. We put them on when we put on Christ. Our adoption is unlimited. But let's move on to our second question. Question number one, who is a son of God? And the answer is all who are in Christ. Question number two, how does one become a son of God? How does one become a son of God? 
Now, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul is going to reintroduce an illustration that he's already brought up uh, in, in last week's passage, in chapter 3. He talks about the law as this custodian or this guardian, guarding the, the children of a wealthy father. And he says the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Uh, he's going back to that way that the law was the guardian that, that kind of enslaves, that, that, that disciplinarian that kind of enslaves the people of God under the conviction of their sin. And, and we need to pay attention to the way that Paul uses his pronouns. He's saying, he's been saying you, he's, he's talking to the Galatians, you Galatians, you, 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 you. And then all of a sudden, what does he do in chapter, in verse 3? He says in the same way, who? We. We also. Uh, who is we? We have to go back to the end of chapter 2, and, and, and Galatians observe that he's using we to refer to people like himself or like Peter who grew up in the Jewish faith. And he says, he says, when we, even the Jews, were children, that is before Christ came, and while they were still under the guardianship of the law, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That is radical. That is remarkable. This must have been like a, a punch in the face to many of his countrymen. He's actually saying that before Christ came, even the Jews were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's sort of a technical phrase that refers to the, the, the way that the entire world operates under the influence and the illegitimate authority of spiritual evil. We were enslaved to the spiritual powers. Now, we could do a deep dive into that, but for the sake of time, we won't. The important thing to note here is that Paul is acknowledging that even though there may have been a distinction between Jew and Gentile, going back many years, they were both the same in this respect. They were both enslaved to sin and to Satan's power. This is a little different from what he said earlier in chapter 3. The Jews had the law, but the law couldn't save them because they didn't keep the law. The Gentiles... They couldn't be saved because they didn't have God's word. They didn't have God's revelation. They didn't even have the law. So if you were a Gentile, you lived in darkness because you didn't have the law. But if you were a Jew, you, you were just as much of a slave because you broke the law that you had. Either way, you're in the same boat. So how does anybody become a son of God? How can I be adopted if that's the case? Well, typically, when Bible scholars try to explain adoption, they borrow from Paul's culture. But I would just encourage you, this is just a rule of thumb. If you want to understand Paul's writings, you need to go first to Paul's Bible. Go first, not to, the, not to Paul's culture, but to Paul's Bible. And if you read Paul's Bible, the, the Bible that he would have read and memorized and preached from, the Hebrew Bible, you can really unlock what he's saying here. He's drawing on what Dr. Jim Hamilton has called a promise-shaped a promise pattern, a thread running through Scripture from beginning to end. In the book of Genesis, think about this with me. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God promised to Eve that the offspring of the woman would destroy the devil. Keep that in mind. Then fast forward to the time of the Exodus. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. They're dominated by this demonic king who mocks the covenant between God and his people. And what is the message that God wants to send to Pharaoh? Exodus chapter 4. He says, Moses, you go tell Pharaoh Israel is my firstborn son. 
Israel is my offspring. They're no different from a slave right now, but I'm going to buy them at the price of a spotless lamb. Then fast forward again to 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7, uh, in which King David tries to build God a house, but God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And he promises and he says, your son, David, is going to sit on the throne and I will be his father and he's going to be my son. This is the very thing that Serena read for us earlier from Psalm chapter 89. So with that in mind, with Paul's Bible in mind, read the words of Paul in verse 4. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. There's the promise from Genesis chapter 3. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, just like God redeemed Israel back in Exodus chapter 4 and following so that we might receive adoption as sons, just like God promised to David and his heir, and that he would be called the son of God himself. How does a person receive adoption? By being bought out of slavery by Jesus Christ himself, by being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Again, this would have been extremely offensive to the sensibilities of the false brothers. They weren't slaves. We're not slaves. We've got the law. We're Abraham's children. And Paul says, no, 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 whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, it doesn't matter. You're a slave, and you need to be bought out of slavery. That's how you get adopted into God's family. Here's our takeaway from chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Not only is our adoption unlimited, our adoption is undeserved. Our adoption is undeserved. You see, whether you're a religious Jew or an irreligious Gentile, you don't deserve to be redeemed. You don't deserve to be called the Son of God. But you can be redeemed. I look across this room, I see people with a huge variety of backgrounds. Some of you grew up religious, others did not. Some of you have had to seek forgiveness for spectacular, visible, shocking sins. Others of you have had to ask forgiveness for socially acceptable, respectable sins. Either way, God's grace is undeserved. We all start out as slaves to sin. And it pains me to say it, but there are those of you who don't, perhaps, understand that that is the case. You think that you've always known the Lord or that you've always been a spiritual person, that you were raised right, that your relationship with God is the natural outgrowth of your heritage and your upbringing. And Paul is saying, no way. You've been enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. No one could have laid as much claim to that sort of inheritance as a, as a Jew like Paul. Do you remember what Paul was like? He had much better pedigree than any of us do. He was a Jew uh, among Jews. He could point you to specific Bible verses in which God made promises to the nation of Israel into which he had been born. But then he met the Lord Jesus, and he had to admit, I am a sinner. I've been living as a slave to evil. I've been the chief of sinners. I need the grace of the Lord Jesus. I need the blood of the Lamb. I need forgiveness and cleansing. I need to be plunged into Christ. And I'm telling you, if you have never in your life fallen under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you are a sinner that you need to be forgiven, that you need the grace of God. If you've never been convicted of breaking God's law, 
if you've never felt the pain of I've been wrong and I cannot go back and fix it, then you have every reason to question whether you really belong to the family of God in the first place. Because conviction of sin and the realization I do not deserve God's grace is a prerequisite for receiving that grace. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether religious or irreligious, whether beaten down by shameful choices or comfortable in your socially acceptable way of life, none of us deserves to be adopted. Adoption is undeserved. No matter who you are, you need Jesus to buy you out of that slave market and set you free. We've asked who is a son of God and how does one become a son of God. But in these final two verses, Paul answers a final question. How does one know that he is a son of God? How does one know that she enjoys this status of sonship? And we've already partially answered this question. If you're trying to understand whether you're truly a son of God, then one of the things that needs to take place in your life is you need to be convinced that you're a sinner, that you need God's grace. But that's not enough. There are plenty of people who have been convinced of their sin, but they never actually become a part of God's family. I think of someone like King Saul. You remember King Saul from the book of 1 Samuel? Saul, he was so convinced he was a sinner. He knew he was a sinner. He, he admitted it. He said, I've sinned more, more than once in that book. And yet by the end of his life, Saul never really truly repents. I mean, he sheds all sorts of crocodile tears, but he dies apart from God. So something else has to happen. Look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Say, so what does that word mean? Is that that band, you know? The Abba, is it the Abba generation or something like that? What does that word mean? Uh, okay, no, it's not the band. Abba is an Aramaic word that simply means father. Uh, uh, you, you may have read or heard that it means something like daddy. Uh, that's actually not true. It just means father. Uh, however, in families where Aramaic would have been the primary language spoken in the home, think about this. Uh, an infant being raised in that sort of home, what is, what's their first word going to be? Abba, right? Actually, Abba. That's how they would say it. Abba, Abba. I mean, for my kids, one of their first words was dad or da, and the other one was ball, <laughs> right? So you can just imagine in your mind's eye how easy it was for them to learn how to call on the name of their father as infants. And so in this way... It communicates the intimacy and the confidence of the relationship between an infant and his or her father. If you think about it, think about this. This was one of the very first words that the infant Jesus of Nazareth would have learned. And it's, of course, one of the last words that he uttered in the Garden of Gethsemane as he called out to his heavenly father. And Paul says that in the life of the person who has been plunged into Christ... The very Spirit of God enters our hearts with this one simple cry, Abba, Father, the cry of the infant as she reaches out her hands toward her dad, the cry of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph in the book of Genesis in the tender moments when their fathers were laying hands on them to bless them in the name of their father's God, my father, each of them says. The cry of our Lord and Savior in the most difficult moments of his earthly career. And here's what that means. We, we've talked about all these wonderful spiritual truths, justification, uh, faith, 
blessing, inheritance, adoption, all of that is awesome. But how do I know that it's awesome for me? How do I know that I participate in in what God has promised to those who are in Christ? How do I know that that's true of me? None of this really helps me unless I know it's true in my case. Here's how I know. When the Spirit of God takes up residence in the heart of a believer, when he takes up residence in my heart and I find myself saying to God, Father, I know your forgiveness is for me. I know your fatherly love is for me. I know you love me. I know that I belong to you. What a joy it is to see this new life take up residence in the hearts of those we love. I mean, how many times have we shared the gospel and proclaimed Christ to people over and over again and said, hey, you've been a sinner, but God would, God's offering his free forgiveness in Christ, and they just say, no, 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 over and over again, and we pray for them sometimes for years, and then all of a sudden the light bulb turns on, and they say, That's for me, Abba, Father. Here's our takeaway from verses 6 and 7. Not only is our adoption unlimited, we get all of Christ, all of us get all of Christ. Not only is our adoption undeserved, everyone needs to be redeemed from the slavery to sin, whether they're religious or irreligious. But the third takeaway, here it is. Our adoption is uninhibited. It's uninhibited. Here's what I mean. We were made to have close father-son fellowship with our creator in Christ that is fueled by the confident assurance of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that reminds us that we are his. This is why I don't have a lot of patience for theological systems designed to make you doubt whether you really are Christ's. You've got Christ, but you need to obey in order to get to heaven. You've got Christ, but you can lose your salvation. No, a thousand times no. If you're really in Christ, God wants you to be confident that you are a child of God. He wants you to know. He wants you to understand the relationship of a father to a son. This is part of what faith looks like. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's not that I think so, I, think, I hope so. It's the knowledge that, yes, I belong to him. How do I know I'm a son of God? Well, have I been convicted of sin? Have I called out to Christ for forgiveness? But at the end of the day, the Spirit of God himself brings Christ into my heart. He clothes me with the robes of the Son of God. He plunges me into Christ, and in my heart, he bears witness to me in my spirit that I am God's son. By the way, that's the very thing the devil wants to take away from true believers. God's intention is for you to know from the inside that you're, you've been given the adoption of sons. And, and folks, this, I am not exaggerating when I say, this is the key that unlocks the rest of the Christian life. My confidence, my obedience, my growth, my spiritual health is all tied to this question. Do I know that I am God's royal heir, that I can cry out to him, Abba, Father, do I know it for sure? Say, I'm anxious about the future, but listen, your father provides for your every need. Say, I don't know who I am. I'm trying to figure out my authentic self. Hey, your father gives you your identity, and he tells you who you are. Say, I don't have the power to change. 
but your father lovingly disciplines you and shapes your life. Say, I'm living in shame, but your father bestows the honor of his name on you. Say, I just don't measure up, but your father's love is dependent on his own faithfulness and not on your performance. You say, I'm alone. No one knows me. Nobody understands. But your father knows you. He created you, and he bought you out of that slave market of sin. So the more you know that he is your father, the greater will be your confidence and the greater your growth in Christ. You see what I'm saying? Your confidence and your assurance and your hope and your growth and your joy and your comfort, if you are a child of God, are not based on your circumstances or on your wealth or on the praise of men, but on this one foundational reality, this heart cry from the Spirit, Abba, Father. And I want you to know that you've been adopted. I want you to walk in the unlimited blessing of Christ, the undeserved redemption of Christ, the uninhibited fellowship of Christ. And so the message today for all of us is, through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ. So the only question is, do you have that faith? Do you believe? Have you trusted him? Say, I'm just not sure. Listen, you're never going to not have questions. But how much better is it to bring those questions to a father you've already chosen to trust? Faith means trusting when you don't have all the answers, when you can't see all the blessings. If you see it all, then it's not faith. So, folks, believe today. Believe. Stop fighting it. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and allow the Spirit to plunge you into him today. Put on Christ. Be immersed in him and walk into the blessing of knowing that you are a child of God.